we're going to come to chapters 5 and 6. As Donna said, two chapters covered, and as well, two chapters in Ecclesiastes, chapters 5 and then chapter 7. And the title is, as you see, Listen, Learn, and Live. Ultimately, um, Ecclesiastes is telling us how to live properly, truly, wisely. But in this episode, there is a focus on listening and it's a very how these lessons are going to be learned. And it's important that we do listen before we speak. Even James tells us that, that we're supposed to be slow to speak and quick to do what? To listen, hear. Uh, but the tendency is the opposite, and that's why James had to write it. Uh, the tendency can be, okay, now what did you say? Or what was your question? Um, or how can I help you? But we've already given our advice, and we've already solved it. Uh, we've already pontificated on some issue um, before we really know what is at stake or what the concerns really are. And if you look with me, if you will, even in the Proverbs, uh, written of Solomon as well, Proverbs seventeen twenty-eight, uh, there's a sense in which appropriate silence even makes a fool prudent. 17.28 says, what? Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. And the implication of that thought is fools tend to speak out of order. And fools tend to speak too much. And fools tend to speak not out of wisdom, but out of their own personal experience um, or simply speak unbiblically. But I think there's a lesson for all of us, even if we have biblical answers, sometimes we don't necessarily have to speak. It's good to listen. To listen to, obviously, here in uh, Ecclesiastes, the person that we must listen to is first God. Make sure that we're listening to God before we can speak and before we can address any issue in life or before we can even move in life because when we listen to the Lord, then we can learn, and then we learn, then we can live properly. And there has to be an order. And I think it's legitimate that hero is, or the Lord, that God is one. And he is calling the people of God to make sure that they hear God's word. So we listen to his word, and when we listen to his word, we accumulate knowledge, and then we have to act on that knowledge. Uh, women walking wise, it's wonderful that we do this, um, but it really has no real purpose as you're like all of these lessons. Uh, if not, you're simply accumulating knowledge, and that is something that is unwise, and as a matter of fact, you would say that it's foolish. Going back to James, James would even say if a person is learning or if they are professing, but they're not acting, James obviously says what? That their faith is really a dead faith. It's not a live faith. And that's true for all of us as well. I didn't reference um, the author as much, you know, in this, uh, these two chapters. There were some things that stood out in chapter 5, not as much in chapter 6. But I do have a couple things that he stated. Undivided, God seeks undivided worshiper. The Bible says this. Undivided worship is what God is looking for in this world. And he says that 
He says it on page 80, and that is so true. And that's tying into the thought of Deuteronomy 6, the Lord thy God is one. He is not a divided God, and we are to give him an undivided heart. And this is why the scripture tells us what? We shall love the Lord your God with all of your, what does it say? Heart and your, and your, yeah, indeed. And here is the reality of life that we don't always do that. Is that not true? We're not always giving all of ourselves to the Lord. And that's because a couple of reasons. Obviously, we are still in sin. And when I say in sin, I don't mean committing sin, in sin, because Paul say that that's not true. You can't be a person that's in sin. I would say that in, in sin and be in Christ, but we are in the flesh. And in the flesh, we are not always giving God what he deserves, so we can be divided. Our affections can be divided. Our attention can be divided. And something else that the author said, uh, the ear is the Christian's primary sense organ. Listening to what God has said is our main spiritual discipline. Why is that the main spiritual discipline? Because, again, if we don't listen, we can't learn. If we don't really have true knowledge, we can't live properly. There are people who live life, and they do live life based on what they've learned, and what they've learned is based on what they have heard. But not everyone is listening to God. Um, Traditions. They have learned from traditions, and so they do learn the traditions, and they live life accordingly. Uh, There are people that listen to the culture, And so they listen to the culture, and they do learn, and then they live life accordingly. But we need to listen to the Lord, and we can learn properly, and then we can live properly. Uh, That's the order of things. Be a good listener. Um, Someone has uh, written a book a while back, and it's actually called Expository Listening. That is, how to listen to sermons. Uh, because that's a task in itself. Uh, expository preaching, uh, there is a science and an art to that. Not everyone is an expositor. I, I wish that they all were. But you n- need to learn how to listen to a sermon as well, how to hear it, how to follow a person's thought, and be- to even interact with yourself. I know I do that whenever I hear a sermon. I'm asking, okay, Hargrove, what does that mean for you? What is your response to this? That's an interesting point. He seems to be pretty passionate about that. Um, He's worked up a bit about it. Let me hear that even a bit more. Are there times I'm saying, this person doesn't seem to be really convinced of what he's saying. I'm not sure that I want to hear much longer because uh, he has dull senses. You say, wait a minute, do you think that way? Yes, I do. Uh, And I'm not critical of sermons. I want to hear someone say something to me. Like when I've taught here at the seminary, and I've taught classes for students, and um, some of them, I expect for you to speak to my heart today. Yes, I'm going to give you a grade, but I'm here to listen. And there have been students that aren't the best communicators, but I walked away having learned something, and now I can live accordingly. And there have been students who are excellent communicators, but I'll say his heart is not in this. I have questions about this. This is all academic for him, and I didn't learn as much from that individual. We need to be in tune to hear what God has to say. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And he, he, he says this on page 82, 
The preacher is saying that looking at the world and speaking about the world will only get you so far. So are we all doomed? Should we just shut up and go home? No, he says in Ecclesiastes, uh, that is not the case. All is not lost. If you're despairing about life, the universe, and everything, then... And the reason he makes this comment, because as you remember last month in chapter 4, I mean, Solomon is looking around the world and he sees all this injustice and he sees oppressors and he sees people being oppressed. So the question is, do we just put our hands in the air and give up? He says, no, what you see, that is the reality of life. How can you reconcile it? Listen to what God is saying. He's saying, I'm still in absolute control. There is a plan that's unfolding. Your eyes... If you only leave your eyes at only sense, if you will, but you don't use the sense of the ears, your knowledge will be incomplete. We look around and we see the world seems to be chaotic. Well, absolutely. But then we have to listen to what God says about the world. We'll think about um, what our pastor is doing and teaching in the book of Revelation. There's an unfolding of a plan. And can you imagine someone that would go through the tribulation and they would say, well, this is it. The world has come to an end. There is no future whatsoever because their eyes are seeing these things. The Jewish people are absolutely going to be wiped out. But if we listen to what God says and understand it properly, we realize that, no, that's going to come to an end. Jesus Christ is going to come again. He's going to wipe out his enemies. He's going to cast the devil uh, away for a period of time. He's going to reign physically on the earth for a thousand years. He's going to temporarily release the devil. There's going to be a final battle, and they will be destroyed. And then what is going to happen? Christ's ultimate power is going to take even hell itself, and it's going to be cast into the lake of fire and all those who rejected Christ. And it also says when it comes to the world that this world is going to be destroyed, and then he's going to roll it out again, the whole universe. Imagine that. I mean, I love the imagery that Peter gives us, that it's going to be rolled out new. It's like when this carpet was put in, I've seen people, as you probably have as well, you've seen them put in carpet, haven't you? And they come in with this huge roll, and what do they do? They roll it out. Imagine that. God is going to roll out a new universe. Now, the imagery obviously is not that the universe is wound up and he rolls it out, but you get the picture, do you not? And that speaks to even the very power of God. See, but if you're looking at the world only with the eyes and what's around you, and you're not listening to what God is saying in his word, you'd say, forget it. Yeah, it's not worth pressing on. How do we even live in this world? So there are uh, some questions and comments I want us to walk through here. And um, then at the end of this lesson, I'm going to give you final thoughts that will cover in one sense, give a synthesis of chapters that we went over, chapter 3, 4, um, and 5, and 6. So, um, number one, are you careful with your promises to God? Chapter 5. So let's all look there. Are you careful with your promises to God? And what is Solomon in chapter 5? Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. 
Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. That is, be careful what you say when you're in his presence. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be what? Few. For the dream comes to much effort in the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. Now, the implication of that thought, notice he says, when you vow to God, don't be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. So what is he essentially said? People who don't pay their vows are fools. Don't be a fool. And you say, wait a minute, a fool is someone who's rejected God, who has no knowledge whatsoever. That is true, but even a believer can, for a period of time or in a moment, be foolish. So don't be a fool. Don't be really what your nature is not. Pay your vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. And he gave you some interesting illustrations there. And uh, you are probably familiar with some as well. You may have made a vow at some point in time in your life where you said, Lord, this is the last time. I'll never do that again. Or, Lord, if you get me to promise it, I will, and fill in that blank. And there have been many people throughout history, they found themselves in a situation, and they make a vow to the Lord, and they say, Lord, I'm going to give all that I have. I'm going to love you like never before. And there have been many men, say, for instance, if we just put in the context of warfare, when they vow to the Lord, Lord, if you get me out of this situation, And some did, and they found themselves out of that battle unharmed. But yet what happened to their vow? It's gone. Or have you ever been to a retreat, and there's a certain topic, and in that topic you feel in that moment sort of pierced and convicted, and you make a vow to behave a certain way for the rest of your life? Be careful about those vows. Sometimes it's better just to say, Lord, I need grace. I need to be better. Will you help me? This is convicting. I'm not even quite sure what I should do in this situation. I need wisdom from above. That might be a better prayer. So he communicates with us. Here's an example of a broken, of a vow broken. Look with me at um, 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy 5, and it's talking about honoring widows and make sure that a person is a widow indeed. And he goes to what makes her a widow indeed, her lifestyle, um, whether or not she's a certain age, and also does she have peop- does she have relatives who can take care of her? But interesting, it says in verse 11 of chapter 5, 1 Timothy 5, but refuse to put younger widows on the list for when they feel sensual desires and disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have what pledge or their vow. So at some point in time, what was happening in the church at Ephesus, and this is what Paul is trying to straighten this out, you should take care of these widows, but make sure they're a widow indeed, a certain age. Um, they don't have family who can help. And they have shown a life of piety before they became a widow. 
or now the need has increased so much. But when it comes to the young guys, and when he says they will incur a judgment, because earlier they said, okay, I'm going to be given to you, Lord. I vow I'll never be married again. I'm going to serve the church with all of my might. And then later on, they think, well, I think I'd like to be married again. And nothing's wrong with that at all. But he's saying, you should have made that vow. It was broken. Now there's a condemnation that comes. So we must be careful about that. And then notice as well, he gives a perspective on riches in verses 10 through 20. And he says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This, too, is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So that, so what is the advantage of their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. evil seen under the sun, rich being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he has fathered a son, then there is nothing to support him. Uh, Let's break down some of these parts. There was an article, um, and I actually just did two lessons in Anchored on the idea of why people need Christ. And at one point in time, I was saying that Christ is the source of our true happiness. And this article and the title is, They're Successful, Rich, and Miserable. New Research Probes midlife angst. And the, the, the gist of the article was to say, here are people that go through life, they work hard, uh, their portfolio literally talks about being fat, if you will, they've climbed the corporate ladder, and they're miserable. And this is essentially what Solomon is saying here. You have riches, but they don't satisfy you. And we all should know that. If we'd known the Lord for any period of time, And some of you may have, there was a period of time where you thought that they would satisfy you and you realize that they don't. You surely know people in the world and that's what they're striving for now. These riches will benefit me. Then at the end of that line, there's dissatisfaction and misery because they don't have Christ. They haven't listened and they haven't learned so they can't possibly live properly. They can't. And I was referencing another time how uh, the world is forever advertising to us and telling us, here are the things that will make you content. And then they don't. And that's why, to a certain degree, certain things are created to create a desire that will never be quenched. I, um, there are certain things that are not good to drink, period. Um, I, you know, when I was involved in way back, way back, <laughs> in college days in playing football, um, when you came off the field, and it, particularly if it was one of those humid days in Cincinnati when I was playing in college, and the Ohio River goes right by it, and it's 97 degrees and about 90 Does that sound well? No, it doesn't. And you're out there, and you're thirsty, and you want something to drink. You don't go for Coca-Cola. Although the advertisers say that, 
What the biggest lie ever. I remember those commercials when Michael Jordan is drinking a Coke. You're a liar. You never drank a Coke at practice. No athlete does that. No one drinks a Dr. Pepper or a Mountain Dew. It just isn't true because it's going to create more thirst. You need something that's going to now um, supplement the loss of electrolytes. That's what you need. And you drank something that was good for you. That's why even today, and you can ask any of the students on the campus, ask them, have you ever gone out to lunch with uh, Professor Hargrove or whatever you want to call me? And you say, yes, I have. All of them will say, no. I've bought students steaks before, triple, what, what do they have? It, what's it, in and out the triple three-by-threes before with fries? But when they say seven up, no, I'm not paying for it. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. I'm not paying for that. I mean, that's, you, you want your GPA to go down? Drink that. <coughs> I don't pay for it. I'll buy you anything else but that. A little fun. That is true. True statement. You can ask any of the students. True statement. Um, see, these things don't satisfy. It has an appeal. Like riches, you think it's going to appeal, but it really doesn't. That's why people can have a portfolio and success in life, but like this article is highlighting, I'm miserable. How is that? Wait a minute. That's not the formula, is it? No, it's not. The formula is listen to God, learn, and live properly. See, when we do this, the perspective on riches is this, peace gained in loss. Um, look at verse 12 again. The sleep of the working man is pleasant whether he eats little or much. Now notice the contrast. That's peace that he has. He may go to bed. He's a bit hungry. He may go to bed totally full. But the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. Why is that? Well, I think verse 13 clarifies it. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. See, that helps us understand, wait a minute, how can he have a full stomach and he still doesn't sleep? Because I think what it's saying, there's something in his conscience that's bothering him. But he's, he's hoarding things to himself. And often, in order to hoard to oneself as a rich man, that means you've exploited someone else, which ties back to When Solomon says, I looked around and I saw this oppression that's taking place, the reason his stomach is so full because he's taken advantage of other people. And in his conscience, because perhaps it's not sorely damaged, sleep escapes him. But here is the, the poor man, and sometimes he, it's not as much as he'd like, and other times, but he sleeps well. Now, of course, Solomon, that's true of every rich person. That's why we have to look at verse 13. If it's that rich person, it's a hoarder. Um, that's going to be the case. Now, let's look at some other texts, though. Go with me. Let's go to the Proverbs. Turn over to, turn back to the Proverbs 16, 8. 16, 8, and what does it say? Better is a little. Remember about the betters. What is better in life? So let's consider a few of them again. 16, 8. Better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. Look at chapter 22, 22 and 1. A good name is to be more desired than great wealth, 
favor is better than silver and gold. I have much wealth at night. Proverbs 28. What does it say? Proverbs 28, verse 6. Better is the poor who walks in his integrity than one who is crooked, though he be rich. And I think that idea of hoarding, the, the reason he is hoarding because he thinks not of anyone else. He's not a community man. He doesn't think of his neighbor. And if he's not thinking of his neighbor, then he's violating right the royal law, as the scripture says. And what is that royal law? That you love your neighbor. And of course, let's remind ourselves when Jesus Christ was asked, what is the greatest commandment? What's the greatest commandment? And what is like it? Love your neighbors yourself. Yes. Listen, O Israel. And listen, O church, what the Lord is saying. Because he doesn't think about other people. He thinks only of his future. Look at the psalmist. Look at Psalm 37. Psalm 37, 16. What does it say in verse 16? Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. Yes. Then go back to Ecclesiastes. We looked at it before, but let's remind ourselves from chapter 4, verse 6. It says there, one handful of rest is better than two fistfuls of labor and striving after wind. And what is that communicating? That this is what life has given you. You're content with it, and I'm resting. But the other person, they're not content at all. It's, and I love the language he says, Two fists full of labor. So it's double labor. And he's saying, I'm going to build my empire. I'm going to hoard to myself. I'm going to get all of these things. I'm going to have all the toys. But guess what? Now getting all the toys, now I've lost my family. I have few friends. My health is failing because I'm toiling so much. And in the end, then what do I really have? Striving after wind. And how many people do that? They strive after win. Working so hard to have nothing. You cannot hold in. It's like satisfaction just slips away because they're searching for it in the wrong places, in the wrong way, because they're not listening and learning so that they can live properly. Here's something else to consider. Go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Here's a... (laughs) Direct point, nothing goes with you. Nothing goes with you. He already said you have a bad investment, then it's gone, and now there's nothing there for your kids. And guess what? As he has come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He can take nothing from the fruit of his labor so that he can carry it in his hand. That's why I've uh, mentioned this to you before, but if I did, I'll I'll mention it again for emphases, if you will. Um, I told Joanne already knows that if I go first, uh, my kids will know, um, you know, spend no money on some, like, fancy, fancy, you know, coffin that has a dove on it and that sort of thing and and all of these things. 
go on a nice vacation with that money. Take my grandkids to, you know, the beach or something like that on a hike. Why spend money on that? And don't even worry about why put me in a fancy suit and have rings on me and that sort of thing like that. Because it's all going to be nothing, isn't it? And I've seen people that do it, and I think sometimes it's to appease some guilt. And maybe family members do it. Okay, we've got to make up for it now for dad or for mom or for grandma. I told him, um, cremation, that's me. And if it would be allowed, you know, take me up to some mountaintop. You probably can't do it in California because they say it's going to kill some insects or something. <laughs> so I'd probably have to scatter me in Montana, right? Which is beautiful. Oh, this is, take me to Glacier National Park. They'll probably allow it there. California, Joanne will end up in jail, you know. <laughs> Why? You can take nothing with you. Live life. Yes, if I can have something for my kids, that's wonderful, but who knows what the future has. It could be an inv- a legitimate investment. Something's in control. Market is all gone. And this is why the scripture says, um, do not weary yourself to gain wealth. It says, for it takes wings like an eagle and it flies away. You had two fists full of labor, and it just flew away. Just like that. You can't take it with you. So don't strive for it. Here's another question, though. Um, and it is this, or really a statement. Make sure that you enjoy life. Go back to chapter 5. Enjoy life. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself and one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the how many years? How many years? Does it say? Few years of his life, which God has given him, for this is his reward. God has given men riches and wealth. He has empowered them to eat from them and to receive the reward. Rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. How do you avoid being the person that may be successful but not miserable? Is that you realize it's a gift of the Lord. And whatever powers I have to accomplish anything that I've accomplished is by God's grace. So I'm going to enjoy life. Some people come up with some false piety and they don't want to enjoy life. That's a false piety. God has given you these things. We all live, for instance, in a, a desert somewhere. And even there's beauty in a desert. But you can go out and you can see beautiful clouds. And you can go out and you can see beautiful vistas. And you can go to the beach. And you can go to the snow. And you can go hiking. And you can do all of these things. And you can enjoy family. You can have fun. And you can enjoy good meals. And you can say, have you ever been to that restaurant? They, that's, oh, it's so good. And you go enjoy it with friends. That's a gift of God. But if you're spending all of your time trying to get more and more and more and more and more, you're going to miss it. Go and enjoy life. Um, here's another question. Let's transition to chapter 7. Here's another question for you. And it is this. Which person are you? Which person are you? Chapter 7, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. A good name is better than a good ointment, 
and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, because that, in the, that is the end of every man. Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the songs of fools. For, I love this wording, for as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of a fool, and this too is vanity. So let's work through this. Uh, why is death better than birth? And it's this, because one is potential and the other is actual. The author used the word potential, but I want to, uh, on the other side of it, say actual. Um, a child is born, and you think about the potential that the child has, um, even aspirations that you have for them, perhaps, aspirations that your parents had. Uh, right now, just again, make it personal, um, I can think about all of my kids, and you thought, oh, I think this would be good for him. You have these aspirations of what they're going to be. And now with my grandson, I've already made arrangements. Talk to my granddaughter about it because, uh, you know, mom holds on a little bit more than the son would. I said, yeah, he's going to go to Africa with me. I'm going to, as soon as he can, I he's gonna do, and I'll have him travel with me and go places with me. These are all my plans for the potential for that kid, Right? But do I know they'll be realized? Do I know they'll be realized? No, I don't. But one thing is certain. When you die, there's your life. Actual, factual, reality. That person says when they're born, the parent has the aspirations for them. Oh, maybe they're seven or so. They're doing so well in school. You think this kid can be president. And they end up just being the president of the, the cell block because they're in jail. Wait a minute. What happened here? It's totally different. And instead of it being, you know, 50, 70 years of, of contributing to society, they're a minister society. And they die. And now it's time to go to the place of mourning. And you say, wow, what a wasted life. He had so much, what? Potential. Yeah, See, that record is true. The record of birth is not. And the only way that that record of birth is going to be better is that that child, by God's grace, learns to do three things. What? First, where does it start? What's the first L? They need to listen. Then they need to do what? And then they need to do what? Live. Yes, that's what has to happen. I, I like this. It's so plain and direct. Let's look at verses 2 to 6. Why is a funeral better than a festival? Um, the author said that death is an evangelist. I like that wording. And I mentioned to you recently when I went back a month ago to uh, the memorial service for my great nephew, and the text that I shared with them was Ecclesiastes 7 and 2. Ideas, people, many people I could see in their faces, perhaps they had not even heard that before. This is a good place to be. Because even as you see a Michael right there in that casket, here is life. 
think soberly about it. Because when you're in a festival, you're thinking, life is great. Life is wonderful. I'll live forever. Look at me and look at all the things that I have and all the friends that I have, all the potential that's in front of me. And then when you have death, here's the record of your life. And someone will eulogize you. And many of you, I'm sure you have read many eulogies before. And you say, oh, I didn't know that about their life. I didn't realize that. That's wonderful. That's good. I was just speaking just yesterday. And they were talking about going to someone's funeral service. And she said, I think the family has a different picture of his life. What should I do? They've asked me to speak. I said, you must be honest. You don't have to give, we talked about, you don't have to share those details or that part of the narrative. But you have to be honest. That's who the person truly was. And I've been to places like that before, and that's not that person. Death is an evangelist because then it causes people who really are listening to hear. Here is death. Are you prepared for it? Some people will be there and they won't listen because they just are looking at their clock and they're thinking, and listening so they can't learn and they can't live. But it forces everyone. Notice again, verse 2. It is better to go to that house than feasting because that's the end of every man. The person who feasts, who's rich, who's poor, they will all be in the same place. And the living takes it to heart. They consider it and it causes them to stop for a moment. Why? Because one forces, that is, one, that is, the funeral forces sensible people to think soberly. Festivals generally don't. Partying generally does not. Sober thinking is biblical. Let me give you some reasons why. Number one, it's expected and it fights temptation. Look with me at uh, 1 Corinthians 15. And what does it say there? There it is. 15.34, and it says, become sober-minded. And notice what he says, as you ought. Or it could be, you know, literally righteously. And stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. So soberness is expected. This is your obligation. And if you're thinking soberly, it's going to help you fight temptation. First Thessalonians 5, 8, uh, Paul there says, we are of the day. And if we are of the day, we need to equip ourselves for, especially if we are of the day, we're not of the night. We live differently than we did before. This is what he's communicating. Number two, it nurtures, and I'll call it this eschatological prayer. And what does that mean? Because what does Peter say in 1 Peter 4, 7? The end of all things is near. Then he says, be of sober-mindedness for the purpose of prayer. So as we think about this world, we should be thinking that way. We should be thinking about last things, and we should be praying appropriately. And if we look at the world around us, it should sober us even in our prayers. Number three, it produces objectivity and self-assessment. Romans 12 and 3 says that the sober-minded person, uh, so when you look in the mirror, you can say, 
that's the true me. Even if others say other things about you, that's the true me. It's going to help you be objective. Number four, it prepares for spiritual warfare. Uh, and this is what Peter says, you have to be sober-minded. Also in 1 Peter 5, 8, you must be sober-minded because what you're, the devil is roaming around and he wants to devour you. But if you're not sober-minded and you're thinking about the house of feasting and the festival, you aren't thinking about spiritual warfare and you'll be spiritually devoured. Uh, it's illustrated this way, just and illustrated. Um, one of my twin sons today, um, I wrote him a note because they're 17 hours ahead, and it's his birthday tomorrow because that's where he is. And so um, the young lady that he's very serious about asked Joanna and I, can you, you know, write a note for him and send it by this hour because, you know, we're 17 hours ahead. So I wrote a note to him, and I went through, proud of him, love him, other things that I said. Uh, one thing that I said, you know, was that you have that Hargrove imprint. Like the genes are pretty strong. Like I see, oh, my word, I see my dad, like right there. Strong genes. They really are. The imprint that's important is the imprints. I said, the Lord is giving you 28 years. And I said, you know, double exclamation point. I said, you have, um, I think I said 60 or 70 more to go. 88, 98, that's a good number. But of course, according to Ecclesiastes, what? I don't know that, do I? I don't. I agree. <laughs> Yeah, he said, amen, amen, amen. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that. Yeah, I'd, it'd be lovely. 70 more years. Do we know that? No, we don't. But years that you have, you listen, you learn, and you live. Let me try to finish up here. Um, everyone will live forever. So remember the appointment. What is the appointment? Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed man wants to do what? Die. And after that is a judgment. That's the appointment that everyone has. So live your life accordingly. And everyone will live forever. The question is, how will you live? Every fool that their life comes to an end who rejected God, they will live forever. They will be resurrected from the dead, and they will be cast ultimately into life forever. So how will you live? And that's what Ecclesiastes 3 is telling us. You remember that? It's a, those beautiful times. It's appointed. There's life, and then there is death. There's birth and the expiration of life. Here, verse 12, money matters, but it doesn't save. Ecclesiastes 7, for wisdom is protection just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. What he's saying here is that money can provide a certain degree of protection for you, but ultimately if you don't have wisdom, you may squander it and put yourself in a situation where your life ends unnecessarily, we shall say. 
But if you have wisdom, you'll know what to avoid and the people to have relationships with and how to invest your time and how to invest your life. It will be a protector for you. It can save you. Here's another thought. Don't fight against the sovereign hand. Look at verses 13 and 14. Consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten out what he has been? And the day of prosperity, be what? Happy. But in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. This is, this is a so important verses here. When life is, you're at a festival, enjoy it. But realize that festival may turn into something tragic. When it's happened before. I mean, I've seen, and you may have seen it as well. I remember, uh, not really recently, but right at someone's wedding. Someone's wedding. Someone comes in, shooting. Groom, dead. And can you imagine that? That you go from this sense of what a wonderful moment in life to now piercing pain. God has made both. He says, wait a minute, are you saying that God has made both? Yes, he has made both. He allows evil, and he brings happiness and prosperity, but pain as well. And why does he say so that man will not discover anything that will be after him? Don't think about God's sovereign plan. That's why it's a sovereign plan. It is beyond you. Don't think that you can figure life out. You can't. So don't resist it. It's folly. Stay in your place of humility and listen and learn and live. And then delight is going to free your hands. What I mean by that is delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Is excessive righteousness wrong? In a nutshell, yes, because you're striving for it at times, perhaps for the wrong reason, is what Solomon is saying. Here's something else. Know that we're all sinners. An important verse that everyone should know, particularly when it comes to evangelism. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. It doesn't exist. Verse 29, man was created right, but he has sought out many devices. All sinners. Here are your concluding thoughts, and I'll do it in two minutes, I think. Number one, life is divinely fixed. Fear God and trust absolutely. Absolutely. Despite what I may see in front of me, because there is a beautiful time. There is an appointed time for every event. Number two is this. Life is filled with injustice. Fear God and live justly. This is what we see in chapter 4. He looks out and you see the oppressors. But we can counter that by living differently. Number three. It is... Life is a call to faithfulness. Fear God and listen carefully. Be careful how few words. Listen first. Life is coming to an end. Fear God and live soberly. Soberly in life. Number five. Life is not fulfilled by riches. Fear God and give generously. Give your resources. Don't be like the foolish rich person who hoards it to himself. The scripture is clear. It is, more, it is better to give than to what? Receive. 
And the sixth consideration, life is filled with fools. Fear God and live wisely. That's chapter 7, and I would say that's Ecclesiastes. So trust, be just, listen, be sober, give, and be wise. That's how you can listen, learn, and live. Father, thank you for these words you give us. I pray that they would encourage everyone's hearts. Grace. I pray the discussion that would take place after this, that it will be edifying. In Christ's name, amen.